Welcome back, dear listener, to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. As always, Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I discuss adult development. That's right, folks. Developmental stages aren't just for the kids. In today's episode, Reed and I will explore different theories on adult development. We spend a lot of time particularly with Ken Wilber's integral theory and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We talk a bit about our own approaches to personal development in adulthood and how we help our clients on this journey. We'll also discuss the phenomenon of the so-called midlife crisis. Talk about waking up versus growing up, how to zero in on your values and live life according to those values, and much, much more. If you've ever listened to an episode of Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers and thought to yourself, you know, I wonder where I can find good training on how to use psychedelics in a clinical practice. Well, wonder no longer. Numinous has several excellent psychedelic therapy training programs. If you want to learn more, you can click on the link in the show notes or go go directly to numinous.com forward slash hour dash training dash selection. And you can use the code PTF10 for 10% off selected trainings. If you've listened to the show for a while, you've heard Reed and I talk about psychedelic clinical trials, the work we do here at Numinous. If you or someone you know is interested in being a participant in a psychedelic clinical trial, you can click on the link in the show notes or go directly to numinous.com forward slash research to learn more. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a rating and review. We really appreciate those ratings and reviews. Thank you to those of you who have already done it. Without further ado, here is our episode today on adult development. Reed, how are you doing on this fine fall afternoon? It is a fine fall afternoon. I'm yeah. doing well. Thanks, Steve. How about you? I'm good. Yeah. For those of you watching on YouTube, you can see out Reed's window and it uh, looks beautiful out there. There's been the same Mercedes parked in the same spot <laughs> the last few times we've recorded. Yeah. It's definitely not mine or yours, but uh, yeah, I think um, it's a fine fall afternoon. I'm glad we're recording today and I'm glad we're talking about this particular topic because it's something that I know you and I think about a lot, um, both just because it has a lot of personal relevance, but also professional relevance for what we do. And that is this notion of development, but especially development in adulthood. Yeah. We talk about, we learn about child development in undergrad and in training programs, but I think less attention is paid to adult development, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, for some strange reason, we've all just kind of adopted this notion that, yeah, the teenage, the kid and teenage brain finishes developing at this age, and then we're all just a mess figuring out, and there's not a great framework for that, or hasn't been, but that's what what we're going to talk about today, because, yeah, I think out of necessity, we've had to play around with a lot of frameworks and doing our own work, working with clients. Yeah. Yeah, we're all just a mess figuring it out. I think a lot of people could probably relate to that statement. Relatable. (laughs) In adulthood, um, just trying to find our way, wandering through the wilderness. Um, Yeah, and like you said, we we learn a lot in school as, uh, you know, psychology professionals about child development. And of course, we've talked a lot about child development and the implications for things that happen during developmental stages for what happens to us later in life, the way we develop our personality traits, um, the presence or absence of uh, self-defeating patterns, psychopathologies, whatever. But there's a lot left on the table if we ignore oh, yeah. nor adult development. 
And a lot of different theories out there mm -hmm. and stages of development, even though, and maybe this is why it's less um, taught, you know, not a generally accepted framework. But you know what's interesting is um, this idea that psychology has a, a problem, mm -hmm. right? And I'm interested in what your thoughts are. Um, but the subjective nature of reality and all the forces at play that go into our mood states and anxiety and every, everything else, what we're left with in this, how old is the field technically? 150 years or so formally. Um, but you would have like uh, the psychodynamic folks saying, uh, strengthen the ego. And you'd have the Buddhists saying, dissolve or eradicate it. And mm -hmm. these were at odds. But I think um, 150 years later, we're starting to reconcile those paradoxes, if you will. Um, Excuse me, I think so. Yeah. Especially the, the corner of psychology that you and I like to play around in. Um, because I think, you know, uh, uh, there are a variety of, of crises, crises that um, modern psychological theory and science face. One of them is a replication crisis in a lot of our studies, right? We've tried to apply the scientific method to the human condition. We've discovered that the human condition doesn't submit very well to the scientific method, at least not yeah. in the ways that some of other, other disciplines do. And part of that's just because what we're trying to measure we're trying to operationalize it so that it can be measured are things that are very subjective. Yeah. And a lot of times the windows into those very subjective things are just self-report, for example. So we take response items on questionnaires and we try to use lots of really advanced statistical analysis to, to tease out what the, what the, the correlating factors are, what they might predict, what they might not predict to give us things like traits or clusters of symptoms. Yeah personalities, things like that. And what we're left with is this, uh, this huge collection of possible tools you can use as interventions in mental health that are often at, at odds with one another. Mm -hmm. Like, and you have these specialized clinicians coming out of their training that's largely, uh, largely dictated by where they trained, who their teachers were and their mentors and what they gravitated towards, uh, what alphabet soup of therapy tools and, um, and then, but uh, they don't have to be at odds, you know, and I think that's, that's part of what we'll talk about. But another thing you mentioned, I think is really important of this idea of what is truth and mm -hmm. some truths are testable and others less so like uh, an example that I heard recently was the debate between Sam Harris and Dan Dennett on free will versus determinism. Oh, Do you remember yeah. watching that? Like this has been five, 10 years ago, yeah. um, but they were good friends. And then they had this, this uh, falling apart publicly, like writing books, criticizing each other's books. And then they agreed to have this public conversation. And, and the thing about, truth is that um, those kind of truths, like, is there a God or what is mm. consciousness or, um, you know, the things like, uh, you know, is, is it free will or determinism? Um, there's not one right answer and it lands on us as individual humans based on um, if it feels true for us and that is determined by um, all of our life experiences that we've had in our bodies throughout our lives, right? So at the end of that debate, I think the most uh, wise thing that was said in the whole thing was when Sam Harris said, uh, just at the end, well, I guess 
your intuition and my intuition are different on the matter mm. and just kind of accepting that and so because you can't if you can't prove each other's perspective um then you know we've got we still should in my opinion seek to understand each other and there's huge value in that when you're in a relationship when you're in war when you're having a debate about politics or god um and uh that in large part comes from just trying to see the world through a different through multiple different perspectives yeah yeah i'm glad you brought up sam <clears throat> and then it like I've been following Sam's work for a long, long time, and I'm sure I won't be able to characterize it accurately, but he fascinates me because he seems like somebody who, you know, prioritizes empirical investigation and what can be measured as a source of truth, right? His, his epistemology is oriented that way, what, how to acquire knowledge and develop knowledge and how to investigate the ontological realities of the world. Um, but he also writes and speaks very opinionatedly about morality and, yeah. and consciousness and, you know, a secular spirituality. What and, it means in the world, uh -huh. not just like spiritual concepts for our inner world. Right. Which I think is so important. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I'm glad to hear, I don't, I don't remember the details of that conversation, but I'm, I'm glad to hear, it's just interesting to hear Sam talk about intuition um, and what, you know, yeah. I imagine some of the things he might say about what intuition is, uh, given what he thinks about consciousness and determinism and free will. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is something that has sort of perturbed my mind since I was a teenager. Like, mm -hmm. what is the nature of reality? What is the nature of truth? How do we um, get a grasp on it? And eventually, you know, finding my, my mind arriving at the conclusion that it is, and this could be totally wrong, but it just seems all subjective, given that we can't escape the lens through which we view the world. And everyone's yeah. lens is different, and it's shaped by their genetics it's shaped by their experiences relative to the environment that they grow up in the relationships that they grow up in the things that they're taught the governments under which they live right yeah <laughs> the privileges totally. or lack thereof that they have so as a psychologist trying to help people um who suffer who struggle this has always been at the foundation or in the background of um the way i approach <clears throat> given our topic today adult development like how do we create the good life what is the good life um, and how do we get a, get a, a hold of the things that prevent us or from, you know, living a good life Yeah. and what are normal, what are the normal stages or cycles of de development that we can all relate to? Yeah. And maybe to try and, um, summarize those beyond all the individual theories that we could dive into. I mean, there's, you know, most of us underestimate how powerful, culture is on our thoughts mm. uh, and therefore our reality and you know we're all in this evolution personally individually and societies evolve too um, which is really interesting to look at and and so we come into the world in this like you might call it a egocentric stage or you're a baby and it's all about you your needs mm -hmm. understandably it's cute and and all that and maybe it's about you mommy daddy mm -hmm. um but then uh you know later in life that's maybe outwardly focused um you know libido comes interestingly uh puberty hormones and an outward accomplishment focused uh approach to the world and then there's often kind of a a wake-up call that isn't the answer but like an a door opening and people start to question their beliefs like um 
that the world is not just what's outside, there's an inner world and all these influences that we've had throughout our life. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, hopefully, ideally, as things progress, a shift towards a more um, giving, fulfilling, meaningful existence of, of how you show up in the world consistent with your values. And, and that's, it, it, I think it's really helpful to look at with a big picture lens because it can feel so uncomfortable at times in our life or mm-hmm. confusing, but we are changing big time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And I think we could plug a lot of the, <clears throat> the stages of development and the theories that are out there into kind of that broader picture. As you were talking, it made me think of Erickson's, you know, Eric Erickson's stages of development, which I wrote down because I don't have them memorized, but he's got his eight stages of development and I'll just list them off for fun. You know, starting at infancy um, to about, you know, year and a half, two years old, trust versus mistrust. Then you move into autonomy versus shame and doubt. Initiative versus guilt. This is preschool years here. Industry versus inferiority. And, you know, these are not exactly face valid self-explanatory labels here. So if you're interested, folks, you could Google Eric Erickson, but... um, then we're getting into later, later teen years with identity versus confusion, kind of you were, like you were talking talking about. Like as an late teenager, we're figuring out who we are. We're experimenting with who we are. We're getting feedback from our social environment. We're shifting our perspective from you know parents to to social uh, to peers. Then you've got young adulthood with intimacy versus isolation, and then. You know, I'm, I'm interested in this stage, I guess, because I'm approaching it, if not in it. And this is generativity versus stagnation, yeah. like you were talking about giving back. and uh, that, That's stuck with me since early, like, psychology exposure in college, like that one. And, uh, yeah, I, I love that concept. And you see it in the wise mentors we've mm-hmm. all had. Mm-hmm. I also see a lot of my clients grappling with that. I've noticed, you know, a lot of times that the type of clients that I get – um, as I advance through my career and the kind of people I'm like reaching out to and trying to help or I'm, I'm often in a parallel process with, so a lot of times they're pretty close to me in age, not all the times, of course, but, yeah. um, and I'm sort of helping them <clears throat> from one or two steps up, uh, on the stairs, you know, where I am compared to where they are. Maybe that's one way to think about it. But yeah, I've, I've given a lot of thought to that idea of generativity versus stagnation and this desire not to feel stagnant. And, but not to confuse that with this need for ambition and yeah. accumulation and proving or protecting those kinds of things. Yeah. And it's a couple disclaimers come to mind that might be useful before we dive in too deep on these rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. Is, um, one is that these stages are just frameworks and every individual is so different and they're often more overlapping than we think. And they may even be, be cycles of stages that um, many people have to go through more than once. Like you can have more than one midlife crisis, mm. for example. And it doesn't um, have to happen midlife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, there's uh, a little story I want to tell on midlife crisis, but the other disclaimer is, is, uh, well, practice matters. Like the only way to know these kind of these wiggly truths, as Alan Watts might call them, is to try them on mm. and check in with how it lands for you and your intuition. Um, one of my kind of yoga teachers who I never met because he's passed on, but Batabi Joyce, um, founder of kind of Ashtanga Yoga from Mysore, India, would say, 
practice and all is coming. Or he would say, you know, the yoga practice is 99% practice, 1% theory. And it reminds me of kind of what we're talking about, what we've learned in therapy in recent years of you have to engage the body to do trauma work because they're, they're labyrinths of the mind you can get stuck in. It's just one thing, it's, it's one thing to intellectually understand something, but, but that has nothing on an embodied experience. Uh, it's like the, in AI and cognitive science, the symbol grounding problem of like you, uh, the concern that AI robots don't have the same moral, um, or ethical um, boundaries. And if they just view every human as just a line of code and haven't mm. had a multi-sensory embodied experience of, of anything, then it would be, you know, fine for them to eradicate lines of code, for example, or another example would be, you could know the chemical structure of a blueberry, all the chemical functions, but if you've never tasted it, you have no idea what it's like, or if you like it, for example. Right. Yeah, yeah. You haven't had that lived experience of blueberry. It's that's very different data. Yeah. Yeah. But on the, on the midlife crisis front, it's actually this book for those on video, I'll hold it up. Psychotherapy and spirit by Brant Courtright that I just kind of an, a random one I found and have, uh, used a lot through the years in transpersonal work. Um, but in there, it talks about Michael Washburn, a not that well-known philosopher, Jungian, who, who wrote a couple of books, but he talks about the midlife crisis as somewhat of a hero's journey where like in the first half of your life, your ego um, emerges from this collective unconscious. Like you, you don't know you're an individual as a baby. Um, you're part of your, your mother, your parents, if you will. And then as it starts to engage in the outside world towards the end of that stage, there's what we were talking about, the libido towards, you know, others like reproducing and whatever and towards accomplishment um and uh, we're getting more and more out of touch with our inner archetype of that true self but then um as that starts to recede like and diminish throughout your life the outward focus you're like wait a minute is this what life really is mm -hmm. or is and you turn inward and that second stage is more of like oh, I have an inner world and I have consciousness and there's all this subjectivity and all these beliefs. I'm not actually my beliefs and they may actually change. Um, and it's like an individuation process back to that archetypal self, but um, back to that baby state, if you will, of unity. But now you have the experience of life that you have to integrate, which is not easy work into it. It's kind of he calls it regression in the service of transcendence. Hmm. And so then comes the dark night, like uh, dark night of the senses is what one book, like St. John of the Cross called it in a book called Dark Night, but um, where it's like a, a purge of your psyche, a purification process um, where there's loss of meaning pleasure. You're like, oh shit, old satisfactions no longer seem gratifying. Hmm. You're confronted with your own shadow forbidden thoughts, feelings, um, like your underworld, your darkness, everything. And then eventually comes in this stage in whatever form for each person, a waking up uh, experience that some like the new age spirituality would say, 
that's what it's all about. That's what you need. But this is actually just the the sign, the door opening mm-hmm. of the work, um, and not enough in and of itself unless you do the the growing up we're talking about, the cleaning up. Um, and so then through that like dark night, the depression, you're sinking into a black hole, swallowed by the belly of a beast like Jonas. These are metaphors for it. You're abandoned by, like even Jesus, why? God, has thou forsaken me? Um, and all your early object relations come on board. You have to face them, you're angry at people, all these feelings that... You know, you thought you shouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't have. Your ego's vulnerable. Uh, go, going back to this old, these old places, um, and this could be for any individual uh, a very different duration, depending on your spiritual anchors, right? Mm-hmm. It could be years. And, and then, and it's not just an ordeal, but like this purification process. And, and why I like having frameworks, especially those that land as, as good and useful for you, or, or the more you can understand and embrace it, the more you can surrender to it, the faster you move through a process like this. And that is like the key, I think, to kind of developing is, uh, you know, really signing on to the process and surfing the waves of those in whatever skillful way you can. Yeah. Well articulated, Reed, and I think um, just as I was listening to you articulate all that, it does seem like, as you as you said, having a framework that makes this process at least feel like it makes some sense, or there is uh, that other people might have gone through something similar, or that there is something to be done, even if what is to be done is to submit and surrender, mm-hmm. um, can really help people a lot. I mean, I, I, I have. Yeah had clients come to me in some sort of form of the dark night uh, and just really want some assurance, some reassurance, some comfort, some perspective that this is a thing and they're, they're going through it. They're not alone. Right. There might be a little hope. Like yeah. We might be arbingers of hope as mm-hmm. a primary role in some of these situations, right? And it can be life or death. Like yeah. when someone feels... Um, like at rock bottom and like there is no way out. Um, having some kind of spiritual anchor or life preserver to hang on to in that can be um, life-saving. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you feel yourself bristle at the word spiritual, just, you know, yeah. which I have certainly done at, at various points in my, in my own particular dark nights and adult development, um, you know, at least the way I think of spiritual lately is less about a relationship to the Judeo-Christian God, for example, or adherence to any particular religious dogma. For me, it's a relationship to the great mystery. It's a relationship to whatever I am at my core. Um, it's a reverence and an awe for the unsolvable. Mm -hmm. Um, and the things that transcend the sort of self-contained ego that maybe you were describing, earlier. And, and for me, like my, my little nods here to mystery and awe and unknowable are how I stay a little oriented, um, and not panic so much. Like I don't need to know exactly what to do next or what the nature of reality is or what the nature of I am like, what is my specific, um, really well-defined nature in order to feel some hope, uh, enough to keep going. Yeah. And then that uh, thing you mentioned about trying to figure everything 
out. That's another thing I've noticed that's highlighted through these and common across these different uh, theories of development is, uh, you know, in the middle of your life, you might be trying to get the answers for to everything. Yeah. And then later in life, as we mature, as we wake up and grow up, we start to realize that hmm, we don't have all the answers and it's okay. And you start to just like live the question mm. and give up the fight to understand and solve everything. Yeah. I like that. Maybe it'd be useful if we um, talked about the difference between waking up and growing up for a few seconds. I mean, yeah. Um, do we get that from Ken Wilber's in, integral theory? Um, I mean, that's the first time I've, I had seen those words used in that way, like the difference between waking up and growing up. Yeah. Ken Wilber is uh, a fascinating fella, right? He, he is uh, the founder of this modern interpretation of integral theory. There are some like older underpinnings that we could talk about, but but uh, he's a brilliant intellectual, and I've since come to realize more than that. Like he's really practiced a lot of this stuff. But um, and his 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 teachings are hard for many, myself included, to decipher. They're pretty dense. We were mm-hmm. just talking before. You, I think you shared that as well. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know, you, when I read Ken Wilber stuff, I need to have a pen and paper handy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but. Um, but I keep coming back. It's been uh, like something I've been soaking up for the past decade. Um, but he wrote his first book when he was 23, hmm. like called The Spectrum of Consciousness. Could you imagine at age 23? I could, not have, <laughs> could not have written such a book at yeah. age 23. Um, but interestingly, like why he came up with this is he, one way he's answered that is he wrote this fiction book called what, Boomeritis? Uh, a novel that will set you free. Hmm. Okay, interesting, right? Uh, 2002. And in that, he said that if millennials, those born after 1980, roughly, mm-hmm. do not become aware of some kind of meta theory or integrative approach to all these dueling theories, then they will go crazy. Mm-hmm. Why? Because that that's a really anxiety provoking sense of self in relation to the world. And sometimes you need, like we're saying that bigger philosophy to hold on to, to make some meaning of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as an elder millennial myself, um, I think I found myself going a little crazy searching for basically this, for what he calls an, you know, integral theory, the idea that, uh, and it's a little, um, bold, but, uh, it is that basically his theory is like, this is a theory of everything. Right. I've, he has uh, researched and thought about um, and tried to integrate knowledge from Eastern, Western philosophies of thought, from, you know, religious ideology, from modern science, from neuroscience, from psychology, from ethics and morals. And I, which is why his theory is so dense because it's so comprehensive. Yeah. Um, but in that density, I'm always, as I read him and I, I'm not as you know familiar with him as you are, but um, I'm seeing like some of those those bright lines like, Oh, okay. He's, he actually is bringing some of these things together in a satisfying way. It just mm-hmm. feels really, really unwieldy sometimes. Yeah. And what I like about his approach is, um, you know, he, he does critique without critiquing that like new age focus on waking up only, for example, but in a very inclusive way, like his big 
uh, quote that I think sums it up well is this saying, transcend and include. Mm. Like, rather than kick out all the old beliefs of this evolutionary game we're in, um, he says, integrate them all, know how to work with them individually and in society, collectively. And that's uh, that's the way to not go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. So, you know, to, to wake up is to transcend something like it's to wake up to the non-dual nature of consciousness of our oneness with the, with each other and the universe. It's to wake up to this sort of silly meat machine that we're (laughs) piloting in this weird corporeal existence. Um, but you know, like you said, and maybe like he says, when you, if you just sort of wake up and stay there, then to use a phrase I used earlier, you're leaving a lot on the table in terms of actually living the life that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might come to the realization that you're just this spirit molecule floating throughout this uh, infinite universe, but you still have your laundry to do. You know, you still have your your uh, friends and family to interact with. You have something to do while this body still exists on this planet. Yeah, I was uh, sitting on that couch the other day in a kind of a catch up meeting with someone, and and they asked me a question I thought was pretty funny. It's like read, are you enlightened? <laughs> and it, of course, I am. it's a, it's a funny one. And, and you and I both have probably these like really humble reactions to it and a very, and a very kind of also informed by working with a lot of humans over the years, uh, reverence for how we all, um, are awake in moments and asleep in other moments. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, but the interesting thing about enlightenment is that uh, I've always kind of thought for years is it's this radical change in perspective, like a turning the lights on or adding more perspectives. But those can be just moments, like a moment of awakening, and it can be long gone and not really change who you are, how you show up in the world, or it can turn into a completely new worldview and way of being. Yeah, well, well said. And I think when, when people have asked me that question, you know, my my answer is no, I'm not enlightened in the, probably the way you th- you're thinking to ask the question. Like, I have had moments of being enlightened about a thing, or I've had mo- certainly like Wilbur talks about these ecstatic or transcendent experiences one might experience like on a psychedelic, for example, as a waking up experience. Yeah. It's a state. It's not a stage. It's not somewhere you set up shop and live, right? It's this this uh, perspective enhancing, perspective giving, like you said, experience um, that has shifted my being. It's shifted the way I view myself in the world. Um, but I would not describe myself as enlightened because I'm mm-hmm. I'm constantly humbled by my life, <laughs> yeah, and and by you know other people and the knowledge or the suffering that um, that they share with me. So I don't know that I could ever say with confidence, I can't imagine a version of Steve Thayer who says, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm totally enlightened. That's, and you won't hear enlightened gurus just answer that point blank either. Mm-hmm. If anyone is a fully enlightened guru, I like how one of my yoga teachers would, would say it of like, you know, we're all walking around the planet um, either awake or asleep or in a state of enlightenment or not and it's on a spectrum more likely and you know 99 percent of the time for most people we're not really fully in that enlightened state but but there are times when you're just kind of 
in you have self energy on board. I like the IFS internal family systems framework of it because it takes out this black or white enlightened. Yeah. It's like you can have some or a lot of self energy on board, capital S self, um, that is in the driver's seat rather than your individual unenlightened parts that have a role and you know we love them and and they're useful and all that mm -hmm. um but that is kind of the way i view it is trying to have more and more moments where you are more and more in that self energy or enlightened kind of state and, and acknowledging that we're all um dipping below that surface and floating above it at different times yeah, yeah. I, I do want to talk more about what self energy is and we can talk a bit about values and things like that but uh i, I just remember this I, I was listening to pete holmes who's a comedian really funny um but he's also he wrote a book called comedy sex god uh he's a really thoughtful guy <clears throat> uh ramdas fan in fact he's he said uh, he met Ramdas kind of later in life in Hawaii after the stroke, mm -hmm. and he asks Ramdas, uh, "Ramdas, are you my guru?" Mm -hmm. And he says, "Ramdas says yes. Now what?" Yeah, I like and, that. And for Pete, it was like, "Oh, <laughs> like this enlightenment again is not this place I go to and set up shop and know I don't have any problems anymore." Um, so people like funny people like him, and, and we've mentioned Duncan Trussell, these kind of hilarious folks that are on a, an enlightenment seeking path or a personal development path are always really fun for me to listen to but yeah i love when people can bring a little comedic flair to the discussion that's for sure yeah. and and in fact those enlightened gurus if you will are more likely to answer you in a riddle that's actually quite useful like the mm -hmm. whole idea of a zen koan mm -hmm. uh it's like just a question that triggers awakening in some in some way mm -hmm. you know but uh, Ken Wilber's integral theory and all the work that's been done by the growing community of people um, building on that um, has some useful, even though complicated, some useful ways of looking at oneself and does a good job, I think, of breaking our inner and outer worlds down into different categories, knowing that you can develop really rapidly on the intellectual or on the physical prowess front or on some aspects of your even spiritual development and it's not out of balance and it's uniquely your trajectory of, of development and and just because someone has enlightened teaching say like osho hmm. right who wrote some brilliant books on love but there's also a documentary about kind of the the shady like you know money seeking practices and interrelational messes that he had around him. Yeah. 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 Like it's maybe it's possible to be an enlightened psychopath or, you know, mm -hmm. a, an enlightened, I heard somebody say that this might've been that podcast with Ken Wilber that you sent me with, uh, or whatever his name is, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, an enlightened Nazi. Yeah. Um, again, the difference between waking up and growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So I love the focus on, on, uh, our own adult development that includes, yes, our mental health and our physical health and our spiritual well-being and also, um, you know, how we take care of each other and the planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Wilbur, I mean, my cursory reading of him, he tries to incorporate a lot of those things, not only the spiritual and philosophical, philosophical, um, what we know from sort of the modern psychological science and theories, but also like biopsychosocial. And mm -hmm. some of the limitations of simply looking at when we're, when we're talking about clinicians trying to help people heal or grow or thrive, 
um, the limitations of simply bio, psycho, and social. Yeah. It often doesn't include spiritual, for example. Yeah, yeah. And one um, idea of Ken Wilber's or way he describes a certain idea that's not that novel is on moral development. Mm. And if we're looking at the stages of how like we individually progress through moral development and as a society, um, you know, if you go way back, there's like warrior and tribal phases, but looking mostly at the, uh, like, what was it? I have it here. The traditional, the modernist and the postmodern, um, stages of development. Like in the traditional view, it was more about, uh, well, traditional view is more about like the, the social conservatism, religion. And then in the modern, it's more like uh, science focused on science and business and keeping the trains running and secular things. And then the postmodern kind of stage of development, and these are overlapping. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the, the postmodern one is more giving a voice to the oppressed and the social injustices and things like that. And what's, what's I think really useful about looking at these is we start to see that, that they are all in each of us in one way or another mm. because, of, because of how things are passed through the generations and the impact of culture and the bosom of the family that you're grown into. And uh, I think a lot of people, like especially if they're really vocally taking a stance in one of these phases will will try and uh, distance themselves entirely from any influence but but it's kind of like embracing the shadow side that's in all of us these things are are passed on in one way or another through like grandparents to parents and and us and and they they may be these lingering thoughts that are inconsistent with the predominant one that are inside ourselves but but even more than that it it helps us interrelate and understand that like oh yeah these people if we're talking about like the boomers and millennials for mm-hmm. example these people have very different worldviews but it's a different time and it was born at this different time in evolution and and here we are and how can we have a conversation together that's productive instead of a battle yeah yeah i guess it's one of the reasons we have labels for certain generations of humans like boomer or or millennial you <laughs> yeah. know it's a it's a i guess um implicit or maybe explicit acknowledgement of what you were talking about of how culture and time in on the sort of the the well culture and the way that culture and all the factors you listed change over time impact a person's thinking impact a person's values what they prioritize Mm -hmm. well yeah and uh i i realized now that um i didn't quite uh complete a thought about moral development, but moral oh, yeah. development for the integral theorists would refer to like the sphere of who you think is worthy of moral consideration. And like, like we were talking about, we can apply these to the phases of like egocentric early life, uh, self, babies, me, mommy, daddy, that's it. That's all that matters. And then you're clan centric um, through development. Some people might stay stuck there, but only viewing your tribe as worthy of moral considerations. It's, it's actually why, you know, why some would say that we see um, in the news in the U.S., we only hear about 
the number of Americans who have died in Iraq, not the number of Iraqis, mm. for example. Mm. And, and then progressing to something that includes all beings, like really um, like animals, creatures, plants, but it's a process, moral development, a process of learning and evolving. So you may start to realize throughout your life, oh, animals feel pain, oh, they have emotions. And you have a bond with a pet or something, and then you see a documentary of slaughterhouses of animals or chickens warehoused, cranking out eggs and treated poorly for Walmart to sell. And you have this moment of like, oh no, um, how could we ever breed an animal to kill? I'm just using this as an example, but, mm -hmm. but so then you either, like you're changing your beliefs and responding in a way that you decide to, like you might stop eating meat, uh, silent protested, or, or I only eat what I kill, or you might chain yourself to a tree or hold picket signs outside of these places, but everyone has a, a piece of their truth. And what I like about, uh, of, of the truth, and, and Ken Wilber really um, focuses on that, that these are valid feelings and perspectives, and what really matters is trying to listen and understand and integrate that, um, like, kind of like parts work. We were talking about parts work, but sometimes we forget that parts work as a metaphor is looking at the inner parts, but, but these are based on principles of how we should interact with outer parts too, like mm -hmm. no bad parts and seeking to understand and listening and, and, uh, loving into the light, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Folks, as you listen to Reed go over all that, it, it, it uh, I just want to name and give reverence to how confusing this can be. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah again, I know we, we gave it a nod oh, yeah. a second ago. Um, cause as I'm listening to Reed talk, I'm finding myself agreeing and, and that I'm also finding Dozing parts. Dozing off. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. No, I'm finding parts of myself objecting, you know, yeah. like, well, what about this? What about this? I'm a little confused about this. So I think wrapping all of this in a nice warm blanket of compassion um, yeah. is something that I often try to return to. So compassion for myself, compassion for others, also compassion for the parts of me that want to protect me and that want to protect my ideologies from annihilation or change. Um, and it's something I try to be really conscious of in me and I notice in others and a lot of people react to that, that dissonance, to that discomfort by becoming closed off and dogmatic and really self-protective and maybe even, um, you know, persecutory or attacking. Mm -hmm. And like you referenced, we see a lot of that in the news media. We see, we see that in our friends and family members and in culture at large. Um, and at the risk of sounding like, a you know, a psychedelic influ influenced hippie. Um, I think if there is a healthy path forward for our society, it's one motivated by compassion and a willingness to listen and understand. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is that um, if you look at this from a big picture point of view, from through an Eastern lens of, say, Hindu and Buddhist philosophy, um, this took me years to start to understand, but this idea that um, all suffering comes from the illusion of separation. Mm. Like in, in, in Hindu uh, philosophy, there's this concept of maya, this illusion that uh, obscures us from seeing reality as it is. Um, like we've talked about, we all see things a little differently. But, but I'm starting to believe that more and more, that 
if we apply it to these stages, you're born into the world as a baby and a state of unity and pure love and things like that. And understandably, you know, we grow up and interact with the world, get influenced, jaded, but, but then if we can strip away again the ego's sense of separation that is actually at the root of pretty much any war or conflict out there because we we've forgotten our oneness our mm. shared humanity and so i think that's one big picture um important reason for like doing this kind of work and uh and uh doing whatever these practices are and and uh using whatever framework works for us to um to get more in tune with our real selves and and that same divine spark that's in everyone. Yeah. yeah. So when you say doing this work, um, would you say that's the work of, <coughs> excuse me, of adult development? It's waking up and growing up. It's moving through, excuse me, stages with integrity. Um, it's having a, the, a life perspective that is different based on who you are and the influences that we've talked about. Um, but trying to make the best of whatever best, whatever metric you use or value or moral compass you use to gauge um, best, uh, but to do so leaning forward instead of being stagnant or falling back or self-annihilating. Yeah, like like uh, trying to really separate out the influences of this like culture scape, if you will, or these... Um, s- imposed limitations, self-limiting beliefs, all that. And, and the beliefs that aren't really true to ours that we may have taken on or mm-hmm. been born into. Um, and, uh, so doing the work to find what's really true for you, those values, like you mentioned, and, and to move your life more in harmony with that. Right? Yeah. I like the idea of harmony. I've used the metaphor in the podcast before. I use it with my clients a lot. But um, when I'm talking about personal development, especially in adulthood, I like to think of the human psyche, the human soul as a musical instrument. Um, And I played the cello in high school growing up. And, you know, it was in the nature of that instrument to fall out of tune because the strings are in tension around pegs that are just sort of jammed in there. Mm -hmm. Usually don't have screws in them to hold them where they are. So we don't get mad at our instrument when it falls out of tune, but it can be really helpful to become an expert at listening to that instrument, knowing when it's out of tune, and then doing what you need to do to calibrate it, right? To bring it back in tune so that you can be in harmony with self, in harmony with the other instruments that you're playing Mm -hmm. with. And when you become an expert at that, then you have options, you have volition, you have choice, because then you can pick what kind of music to play. And if you're an instrument well-tuned, there's a lot of options for what you can play. But if you're an instrument not well-tuned, it doesn't matter what sheet music you're using, you're not likely to sound very good. Yeah, I like that analogy a lot. And in fact, I saw that in real life after recently just putting a new string on a guitar and Mm -hmm. seeing how that string is the one that goes out of tune um, so much more and so much more quickly than the others. Um, But And you start to realize that as you tune yourself more and more, uh, that becomes more efficient and second nature, if you will, to get in that state of attunement. (laughs) I like that. I'm going to add that to my metaphor because when you put a new string on a string instrument and you bring it into tension, that new string will stretch. So if, if you, and old strings don't stretch as much, right? They're used to being where they are. So I've snapped them before. (laughs) If you stretch them too much, they snap, man, this metaphor is gold. Mm -hmm. 
Because when you're trying on a new way of being or trying on a new skill, we talked about habits a couple episodes ago and making changes stick, mm-hmm. um, that it's very rare for you to sort of put it in there, put that string in tension and for it to uh, never stretch or fall out of tension. So again, we can make reference back to what I said earlier about self-compassion. If mm-hmm. you have an understanding of your development and you have this container of understanding with in which all this scary stuff, the dark nights, the hero's journey happen, um, then you're, you're, you're going to be able to navigate those rough waters. Now I'm mixing metaphors, mm-hmm. navigate those rough waters with more confidence, with more faith, with more hope. Yeah, I like it. Um, and, uh, your question about practices, I also didn't really answer, but to, but I'm realizing that because integral theory is, can feel so complex and therefore confusing or overwhelming, I think it is uh, important to try and distill it down to what could be pract- what could practice look like and and uh one way I've seen some people approach that is like of plotting the different areas of development um and uh listing off some practices that support them and taking an inventory of where you're at in these things. There's even something called the psychograph in integral practice that um, that is kind of like the psychological assessments we do, but it includes a lot more spiritual and other parts of life and plots, it might plot where you're at at a given point in time across 10 areas. But but if you look at like these these core areas of, of practice would be like body, mind, spirit, and shadow, hmm. those four. And then other ones that are um, ancillary supporting ones like ethics, your intimacy, your work, your emotions, your uh, broader relationships. And then if you would like look, if you want to work on these, like at least the core things, pick one practice from a given module and try it and really try it enough days or weeks to give it a chance. Like for the body, you know, it might be um, some kind of adopting some kind of body-based practice for joyful movement or, or, uh, just being able to function and flourish in life. And for mind it, you know, there's so much there, but like the, the meditation, attention training, the reading and study, um, and then spirit, you know, whatever your spiritual practices are of inquiry or, um, meditation, worship, devotion, um, nature, whatever, and, uh, and doing some shadow work. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like to think of that process sometimes in terms of the scientific method, just to sort of take the pressure off of myself, meaning that uh, I start with a theory. Like, I think this is how the world works, where I think that if I try this thing, I might feel better or do better. Um, and so I have a theory and I'm not particularly attached one way or the other. I try not to be. And mm-hmm. then I go out and test a hypothesis based on that theory. So you mentioned the practice, right? Like trying yeah. something on for a week or two or even longer and then collecting data. And if we're really trying to be a true scientist about it, when we collect data, we're trying to be mindful of and control for our biases so that we look at the data as purely as possible, knowing that we can't help but be biased. But you know, as much self-awareness as possible, you bring to that process. And mm-hmm. then you make you calibrate life, you tune your instrument, I guess based on the data, based on what you collect, what you observe, what you experience. Yeah, like we've talked about a time or two on here about doing trigger work, Mm -hmm. you know, like what in the last week 
has activated you and um what did you do with that like and did was there a time when you were able to look back and reflect on it and see how you reacted and um do something like we've talked about like a a process of emotional self-exploration when's the earliest where does that hysterical reaction come from because mm-hmm. when it's a hysterical reaction it's historical and how might I add some self-awareness, understanding, compassion by by seeing the origins of these kind of uncomfortable things that keep showing up in our lives when someone hits our button, our buttons, but then um, doing doing that kind of practice makes it second nature and you can almost do it in real time and pause the maladaptive reactions before they unfold and you get in trouble again for your road rage or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That process you're describing, I imagine, as a cycle with epicycles. So we got this spiral of life that we're on. And for those mm-hmm. of you not watching, I'm just like <laughs> curling my finger as a spiral upward. And so we hope that we're spiraling yeah. upward toward transcendence or you know the good life or whatever it is. And there are these broad loops that include different phases and stages of life, certain experiences. Uh, and then along that loop are these epicycles, right? Like the trigger, trigger work. Like, oh, I got triggered again. What's that about? So I, yeah. I contemplate, I develop awareness. I use those practices to develop more understanding and insight. Um, and if I can keep doing those little epicycles in a way that is healthy um, and that is true to self, then I continue this progress of an upward spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I like to, this is even on my website, I like to think of this process as one of these cycles as a process of descending first. Like we got to go down into and do the shadow work. The like underworld. Got to get a sense for our triggers, follow those trailheads down into the inside, into the past. Um, then once we've descended and done some work, we can then begin to ascend, right? Out of that pit on the hero's journey, return with gifts and insight we can give to others, mm-hmm. clarify our values, and then after we've ascended, maybe we can transcend and integrate, Poof. right? Transcend and integrate, like you said earlier, um, with respect to Ken Wilber's book, but that or his writing. But that is not a one and done process. That is not yeah. the process. Again, it's more of an epicycle along this more general, broad uh, spiral upward. So I like forgive the rant, but I like the rant and the spiral uh, analogy. In fact, last time we talked about eating disorders Mm -hmm. and um, in eating disorders, there's this commonly taught thing that the recovery process is not linear, it's Mm -hmm. more of a spiral. And uh, in integral theory, for example, over the years, Ken Wilber has adopted spiral dynamics Mm -hmm. concepts in there to really apply these stages of development to that kind of spiral geometry as well. Yeah, I'll admit when I've looked at spiral dynamics before, it feels as um, difficult to grasp as <laughs> as integral theory, but yeah, generally. But yeah, there's some gold in there for sure. And I, I just love the general concept of the spiral upward, like you said. Uh, it, it, I can make use of it. You know, it's, it's orienting for me. Um, another one is Maslow's hierarchy. This is one that a lot of people will be yeah. familiar, uh, familiar with. And I've mentioned this book before, but Scott Barry Kaufman's book, Transcend, is a revisit where he revisits Maslow's work um, and builds on it. You know, Scott's a a scholar of Maslow, really, Mm -hmm. and has done a lot of empirical work himself on, you know, positive psychology and and related topics. But 
he sort of recontextualizes the pyramid. He, he, he asserts that Maslow never implied for his work to be put in sort of a stage wise yeah. pyramid that people ascend. He wanted a spiral. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. That's why I wanted a spiral. So Scott comes up with this alternative metaphor of a sailboat. Mm-hmm. Um, and you should Google it if you want to see it or get his book transcend. But um, he's got this sailboat, the hull of which is down in the water and in the water is security, right? We have to have mm. this strong hull that carries us through, um, what might be dangerous. So in the, in the, of the security needs, he has safety connection and self-esteem. The bottom of the pyramid. Yep. And then at the top, the sort of the air is growth. So we have security, then growth and part of the sail of the sailboat that carries us through life this uh, ocean of, of waves is exploration, love, and cool. What's the last one? Purpose. Nice. And then above all that is this, the wide open sky of transcendence. So I just think it's a fun, it's a fun metaphor. Um, and of transcendence, this, I just pulled this from his book. He says the need for transcendence goes beyond individual growth and allows for the highest levels of unity and harmony with oneself and with the world. Transcendence, which rests on a secure foundation of both security and growth is a perspective in which we can view our whole being uh, from a higher vantage point with acceptance, wisdom, and a sense of connectedness with the rest of humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can see the parallels with what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, and I like the boat analogy. I've heard that applied to integral theory, transpersonal uh, theory as well. Of It gives you kind of a a broad worldview and ontology to see what boat you're stuck in, uh, meaning like challenging your cultural beliefs, your about what is sacred and important to you mm-hmm. to get more into that big mind, wise mind perspective that integrates everything, um, transcending that, that stuck lane you're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you got to see it first. Awareness is half the battle. Which is... One of the, the reasons I think um, slowing down and engaging in contemplative practices is so crucial to adult development mm-hmm. because of how crucial awareness is. Um, otherwise, as Jung said, and as we like to quote often, if uh, unless you mm-hmm. make the unconscious conscious, it'll dictate your life and you'll call it fate. And I wonder about the yeah. things that I've called fate or that I'm currently calling fate. That's just the way I am. Um, that uh, might not just be the way I am. They might be some conditioning or social programming or karma uh, karma, <laughs> or a part of myself that isn't core self that's sort of running the show or steering the boat, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And there are subconscious forces at play in all of us all the time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what is it like we have 80,000 some odd thoughts a day and 90 plus percent of them beneath the general level of our awareness. Yeah. Makes me think of that old uh, metaphor to explain Freud's theory of personality where much it's the iceberg, right? And much or most of the iceberg is beneath the level of awareness, subliminal, subconscious. Yeah. And if you think of enlightenment as a radical change in perspective or adding to your perspective, you can see how, uh, like just getting more worldviews or integrating different philosophies and theories can be helpful it's kind of like, uh, if you've seen those 3D scanners, mm. I actually sat in one once. Well, I, I did a headstand in one once. They, I had to hold it for two minutes or something while this scanner just 
whizzed around me and then it'll 3d print you or whatever. I think um, that would have put me in the hospital. That's <laughs> <laughs> for two minutes. But it's Good like, on you. like if you, um, anyone I've known who has gone on a trip to India, for example, or, or pick a lot of different places, uh, they've come back changed in some way of their worldview and beliefs more so from that week than any other week they've had in a long, a long time. Mm. And it's because you got kind of a radical, additional perspective like if you're looking at a thing from in front of it versus looking at it from in front and the side and every angle around it like when we accept the perspectives of others not accept them but like hear them try to understand them in debates that's when we have more of i guess you could call it an enlightened or um, broad perspective informed view that can be so helpful yeah yeah, I love the this notion of perspective and view. Like, in, and we have fun examples of this in cognitive neuroscience, right? Or you have a a, a, a picture of something, mm-hmm. and you look at it, and your first impression is this is a woman's face. Yeah. And then you know you're then you're primed to look at it differently, and all of a sudden you see something different in the image. It pops out. Or mm-hmm. you know, if I were to look at this piece of paper from one plane, it would look like a very thin line. And if I hadn't, didn't change my perspective, I wouldn't see that it's actually a broad, flat sheet of paper. And maybe I'm having an argument with somebody who's sitting to my left and they're seeing this broad sheet of paper and I'm seeing this thin line. It's a face. No, it's a vase. (laughs) Exactly. It's a duck. No, it's a woman. It's a gold dress. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about the dress thing. Yeah. So just humans, again, important to, to plumb those depths of the subconscious. And for me, my, my trip to India was not a trip to India. It was. I've had a lot of sort of, I guess, trips, so-called trips to India, but um, psychedelics as mind manifestors, as tools to plumb and explore the subconscious have been incredibly important for me. Yeah, um, you perspective. Know, they, are, they are, we've even called things like ketamine chemical perspective, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to our conversation about waking up and growing up, um, we are often <clears throat> find ourselves talking about on this podcast the importance of not, um, you know, mistaking the, um, the altered state of consciousness as, um, sort of what you want to be like or cultivate in daily life, right? It's a, it's a perspective granting tool so that you can live life in a way that is more in alignment with your values. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, how do you help people find their values? Well, there's lots of practical tools, mm-hmm. like value a, card a values card yeah. sort or just showing them a list of values, or sometimes I'll have them do it a little, what feels like upside down or backwards. And I'll say, describe to me what you spend most of your time doing. Describe to me what you spend most of your time thinking. Um, and I, and I can kind of tell you where your values are currently. Uh, again, it's a rough estimate. It's yeah. not, not going to be pretty accurate based on, you know, where you point your lantern of consciousness and what you spend most of your time doing. And if people are experiencing a lot of dissatisfaction and dissonance and, and, you know, distress and dread, it might be because the values that they're living in service of are not the values that their core self really, really has. So part of the transformation process, the adult development process, the healing process is discarding ways of being that are in service of values that really, really aren't in alignment with who you really are. Mm-hmm. So that's one way I go about it. Yeah. Cause as you do that work, whatever approach you're taking, you start to see some ways you're spending time or things you're doing in life that aren't in line with your values. And you're like, Oh no, mm-hmm. um, how did I get here? But, 
Um, I like to sometimes have people free associate, free write a little bit on questions like, who am I? Mm -hmm. What do I desire? What do I know? And like, it might take a while of writing, uh, who am I? You're writing simple roles and things, but then, you know, it tends to get deeper and deeper as you just dig. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also having people make a list of like things I know because I experienced it in one column, things I know because someone told me it's so. Mm. And just like, it's an interesting thing to take an inventory of and, uh, and realize uh, kind of the value of your own experience and, and some things you can really test and try on in your life or check, investigate further. Yeah, I like that. Those are good tools. I think um, it's also possible for values to change. Yeah. And so sometimes a value will change out from underneath us and we don't realize it's changing and that can lead to a lot of confusion and dissatisfaction where we are trying to be an older version of ourselves or a version that is, like I said, changing, uh, maybe just beneath the surface of awareness Mm -hmm. and we come into contact with that change when we get frustrated or triggered or whatever. Um, so processes like you're describing might reveal that kind of thing going on. Um, that can be really enlightening. Yeah, yeah. And uh, even yesterday at a research clinic, uh, there was a package addressed to me, but it was um, some sets of values, card sorting tasks that, that are part of one of the psychedelic studies we're doing, part of the protocol. So I brought one of those home to uh, try out because I'll do a value card sort on myself every six months or so at least mm-hmm. and it is interesting that they're not always the same <laughs> like mm-hmm. and and that's and if you save those uh, in your self-reflections and journey you can look back and see at what are the how are things changing and what are the common themes too and both matter yeah know? and what things aren't changing like it's yeah. a little it's a little sort of intra-psychic factor analysis right <laughs> You're yeah at all these different variables to see which clump together and what kinds of themes can you can you derive <clears throat> from where they clump together. And you might discover you have, even though your specific values, the specific words on the cards might change, which piles they land in, you know, you might notice that, man, I really do have a pretty consistent value around things like family yeah. or, you know, achievement and growth uh, or integrity and honesty or compassion or humor or something like that. But And even on those ones that are consistent, I've realized about myself and probably applies to many humans that um, having the values is one thing, but being able to prioritize them and really give them the time and focus and energy and space in your life that you truly desire takes that effort, the cleaning up and the growing up effort. You could have a wake up of looking at your values and be like, oh yeah, but if I don't take them and put them out in the real world somewhere, like for me, it might be a three by five card for a while of just like having that in my pocket. I know I talk about three by five cards a lot, but they've just been a, a tool over mm-hmm. the years. Um, but putting things through that filter as you make your decisions and say yes or no to things or uh, because we're, like we talked about on that habits episode, we are habitual creatures and we're very prone to distraction and getting pulled in areas that life and the world pull us into that may not be value driven. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I do something similar. If I have an awareness that I want to um, investigate, sometimes I'll just set a daily reminder on my phone. Because mm-hmm. um, I'm not I'm not an, an ancient Gen Xer like Reed. I I use uh, I'm, I'm an elder millennial and I use technology. Uh-huh. I'm just teasing. But um, yeah, that that daily reminder will sometimes help to draw my attention to it, and then it, then I'll habituate to that, and I'll almost ignore it. And that's usually a sign, like okay, I need to mix this up a bit to bring it back into awareness. Yeah. Well, Reed, thank you. As usual, we have uh, had a wandering sojourn through mm-hmm. this particular topic. Yeah, I hope it's interesting and useful to people. I, I also acknowledge that it's a bit, it's a bit confusing and, yeah. and complex to talk about, but it, uh, it's something I love diving into. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about this today. And um, yeah, if you have any feedback for us, you can always email us, um, like we always say, or if you're on a listening or watching on a platform where you can leave a comment, please do so. We'd love to hear back from you folks. Yeah. See you next time. Thanks, Reed. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous, a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel. Like the videos and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.